Good morning. All right, am I on? Thank you, Matt. Praise God. We, Tom, thanks for making a joyful noise. We're, we're awake. <laughs> it's awesome. And we're here to praise our God. Thank you for joining us online. And uh, I just pray that the Spirit of God would just surround you and invite you into His presence this morning. We sense His presence here. Thank you for being here. Um, early this week, we got hard, shocking news for us as a family, as a community here at Rimrock. Uh, uh, Mason Short went to be with Jesus uh, Monday late and Tuesday early morning and um, he's be praying for Jeannie and the kids. We're going to have a, a celebration for Mason's life at 2.30 this afternoon and, and they would love for you to come join them. It'll also be available online but, but uh, all of you have been blessed by Mason. I'm, I'm going to miss Mason but all of you have been blessed by him whether you knew him or not because uh, he was um, part of our sound team and uh, the thing I, I loved about Mason was, uh, you know, we went into this uh, virus pandemic not knowing much about it so we, we we stopped meeting gathering together and so we were trying to figure out how do you do this online how do you how do you broadcast and and uh, so we were struggling with our sound and 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 Mason you know instead of complaining or, or saying it wasn't good he said I'm going to be there and I'm going to I'm going to work on it and I'm going to make it good <laughs> and that was Mason he just he dived all in 100% and he just served with his whole heart and so um, that's I think how Mason lived and how he, he followed Jesus so so thankful for him he's going to be so missed uh, please be praying for Jeannie and their three kids this week so Isaiah is an amazing story not about us but about God and I think of even in light of Mason's going home and thinking about Job and what, how he responded when everything was destroyed and lost and gone. It says he worshipped. He fell on his knees and he worshipped. And Isaiah is a story about God and our part, our invitation to God is one of worship. <laughs> and so last week as Boomer spoke out of Isaiah 55 and invited us to come, as it says, come and to listen to God, to seek God, to celebrate God. This morning, we're going to be in Isaiah 58 and 59, and it's really a continuation of that invitation to worship. But we have a problem as human beings. <laughs> so we need Isaiah 58 and 59. And, and I just want to set up the context here for Isaiah 58 and 59. It's, this isn't directed to the, the world um, outside of God's chosen people. Uh, if you are a, a follower of Jesus, you are his chosen son, his chosen daughter. He has made a covenant with you. He is, as we said in chapter 42 of Isaiah, he has, he has, he has uh, called you and he keeps you. You are his and he has you in his hands. And so this is directed towards the people of God, the children of God. This isn't just for for anyone. This is an invitation to true worship, as Jesus said, to worship in spirit and truth. This is that invitation for us. And, and there's some words here that are, can be hard for us because as we see throughout the book of Isaiah, we have a tendency as human beings um, to look at other people and say, they're the problem. <laughs> we, we don't like to, to examine our own hearts and our our own worship. We like to, to look at others and we like to blame others. But Isaiah confronts us with the reality of God and the good news, as we sang already, though our sins 
they are many, his mercy is more. (laughs) That is the story of Isaiah. It's a story of God and his glory and his holiness, but also his mercy and his desire for relationship with us. And that's why he says, come, come to me, you who are thirsty, you who are hungry, you who long, come to me and I will give to you. And that is what God's invitation is to us this morning in Isaiah 58 and 59. So I've had a word rattling around in my head the last few days. (laughs) You ever have that where there's a word that you just stuck on? And the word is hubris. And it's a Greek word and um, it it comes out of Greek mythology. And it's a word that has to do with um, kind of the human condition where uh, we have a a fatal flaw that we're blind to, that we can't see. And so this word hubris really highlights this idea of pride and arrogance where we think we got it figured out and we think we know the right way and we kind of want to tell the gods. In the Greek mythology, there's multiple gods, gods what to do. Now, from a Christian perspective, we believe there's one God (laughs) who's revealed himself as Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He's holy, he's one, he's glorious, the creator of heaven and earth. But that idea of hubris is a deeply biblical idea because as it says in Proverbs, it is the pride of man that comes before the fall. And so this fatal flaw of arrogance or pride where we're, we're looking at everything else and everyone else and we don't see our own weakness. We don't see our own need. We don't see that we are mere humans and not God. (laughs) And this I like to refer to as the sinful condition of the God impulse. And it's in all of us. From birth to death, we have this struggle with the God impulse. Now here's the, the reality as followers of Jesus. We are saved, we are being sanctified, and we are glorified and being glorified by Jesus Christ. So if you are here today, as the Apostle Paul would say, and you believe in Jesus and you've given your life to him, you are a saint. (laughs) You are called a son and daughter. You are fully accepted and fully kept by God. But there's this reality of struggle that Paul calls the flesh. And this struggle is deep in all of us. And as Christians, we are not exempt from that struggle. Apostle Paul describes that so well in Romans 7 and 8. This reality of, of the sinful, prideful struggle of self against God. And so as we come to Isaiah 58 and 59, we are confronted with the reality of the worship struggle in each of our hearts. It's real. It's a real struggle. Read, read with me if you have your phone or your Bible. In Isaiah 58, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to their descendants of Jacob their sins. And by the way, we don't want our sins highlighted. (laughs) We don't want our sins exposed. But this is what God says, For day after day they seek me and they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Have you ever wondered where God's at? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't answer prayers the way we think he should? I know I have. 
I think that's common as human beings to have that question, that reality. But see, God, He, he cares too much about us to, to leave us in a place of hubris, in a place of denial, in a place of blindness. I love what Hebrews says that God as a father disciplines us as sons because he loves us. And so he doesn't allow us to go on as if everything's okay. He confronts us with the reality. And this reality is that many times our worship is not in spirit and truth. Many times our worship is but an act as if we were actors or as if we were performing for someone else. Our hearts aren't in love with God as the greatest command is to love our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. So many times we only give God a portion or a part or we have conditions for God. And this reality of of pride and arrogance in our hearts has to be confronted. God loves us too much. He desires relationship with us too much to let it go. So I was sitting in SeaWorld some of you have been to SeaWorld, and uh, I had a revelation from God. <laughs> God can reveal himself anywhere, can't he? And so there I am sitting at SeaWorld, and I'm at the show where uh, the, the whales, the killer whales are, are performing, and they're, they're doing these amazing tricks, and there's trainers sitting on them and swimming with them, and, and I was enjoying it. I thought, this is amazing. This is cool. But God uh, got my attention at that moment, and as I'm sitting there, he said to me, many, many times, Ben, and not in an audible voice, but just in my heart, he says, many times you think of worship like this, and many times as a church you think about worship like this. Because I was sitting as a spectator, just sitting back, enjoying the show. But as I thought about that, I realized what Isaiah is pointing out here about my own heart and about how many times as followers of Christ we can fall into this trap where we can become mere consumers of God and we can sit back and kind of enjoy God for an hour on Sundays and then go about our business and we think that God is like a killer whale to be enjoyed from a safe distance. And I thought about that and I was thinking about the trainers out there and then I was also thinking about what would it be like if there wasn't that huge glass barrier and I was out in the middle of the ocean and I went for a swim and a killer whale came up, how would I feel about that? (laughs) And I realized that that is the holiness and the glory of God, the power of God, the greatness of God. It's overwhelming. It undoes us. And so when Isaiah came into the presence of God, he didn't sit back in a nice comfortable chair and say, this is cool. (laughs) No, he fell on his face before a holy God. And he says, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. He understood the beauty and the glory of God. And when we come into worship, it's not a trivial thing. It's not a small thing. It's a dangerous thing. As C.S. Lewis says about God as the character Aslan, he's not a tame lion. God is not a tame God. He is not to be controlled or bent to our wishes or what we think he should do. You see, our deepest sinful problem as human beings is that we think that God should do what we think, that we should give God our agenda 
instead of seeing God's agenda, God's plan, God's heart, God's story. And this is what he says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. That's the issue. We say, God, you got to do it this way. I want it this way. And that's the problem. But God's heart is different. He invites us not to think selfishly about ourselves, but God at his very essence is good. He is love. He is not self-seeking. He is other giving. And he demonstrated that how? By sending his son Jesus into this world while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God did not wait. He acted. He moved for our good on our behalf. That is the nature of God. And so he invites us to worship that way. He invites us to come to him authentically with our whole hearts, to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, everything we have, to dive into the ocean with him. And this is what he describes worship as. He says, Your fasting ends in quarrels and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting I chosen only for a day for people to humble themselves? You see, this is our issue We just want to give God one hour when he wants all of us, every aspect of who we are. He wants our whole love, our whole heart, our whole mind, everything we have. He invites us, if only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wonder with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear, and your righteousness will go before you. Here's what I think he's inviting us to consider. Just like Isaiah, when he came into the presence of God and he realized his own pride, his own sinfulness, and says, I am ruined. What God did was instead of destroying him or condemning him, God saved him. He came with a a coal and he touched his lip and he said, you're forgiven. Your sins are, are taken away. And look at what Isaiah's response was. He says, I want to be part of God's work in this world. I want to be about what God's about. I want to join him in his heart and his love for others and his goodness towards the world. He's a light. He brings beauty. He brings salvation. He brings healing. He brings goodness. And I want to be part of that. He he said, God, send me. I am yours. And so here's the worship issue. If we encounter God as he truly is, if we truly dive into the ocean with him and all his glory and his power and his majesty and we experience his grace, the natural response out of that is to love others sacrificially, to give of ourselves towards the good of others. And that is the kind of worship, as Jesus said, in spirit and truth, in every aspect of who we are, to be part of God's work, to be in step, as Paul says, with the Holy Spirit, to be directed by the heart and the mind of God. And so what we see is the second command here. If the first command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength, the second is like it, Jesus said, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so you see the progression of what true worship is. It's not 
just about us. It's not coming to a nice show to, to, to see what other people do, like SeaWorld. The invitation to the church, to the people of God, is to be participants. That our worship is to affect every aspect of our week. As we go into the workplace on Monday through Friday, as we go into our family places, as we go into the community places, as we confront the struggles of our culture, we become the kind of people that reflect the goodness and the love and the holiness of God. And that's what Isaiah is describing here. He says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will be go, go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing of finger, and the malicious talk, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the press, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday, and the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. Do you hear that? Who's going to rebuild? God's people. See, God includes us. God acts. He moves. He shows grace. He shows love to us. He forgives us. But then he invites us to raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairs of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Michael, Pastor Michael mentioned where we're at as a culture. We look around and we see so much brokenness, so much fear and despair and anxiety, so much anger. We see so much broken relationships. But I think the solution isn't a political one. I don't think it's uh, necessarily just us all coming together around a certain cause. I think the invitation of Isaiah is what we need. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. Because we cannot do anything without our creator, <laughs> with our maker. He's the one that puts breath in our lungs. He's the one who made everything. And if we try to figure this out or solve this on our own, we're going to mess it up more. <laughs> it's a worship issue. We need to come into the presence of God. We need to experience God in all his glory and his holiness and his grace like Isaiah did. And he invites each of us to experience him. And not just at the moment that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but every day we come into his presence and we seek him. As, as Boomer talked about, coming and listening and seeking and celebrating. And that's what Isaiah 59 is all about. And I believe this is the solution. This is what God has revealed for us. And how do we respond in a world of so much darkness, so much despair, so much fear, how do we respond? It's interesting. We must look inward first. <laughs> if we don't pause and look at our true condition, then we can be guilty of the very same sin Israel was. Hubris, pride, arrogance, blaming, condemning. If we're to be repairers of broken walls, if we are to be healers, and people who bring light and blessing to this world, then we have to understand and grapple with our own tendency 
towards sinfulness. And that's why Isaiah 59 is so important. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. So Tom mentioned a lot of times we say, or or Michael mentioned as well, where's God (laughs) in all this? Why isn't God doing more? Why isn't he fixing this? Is he... Is he not strong enough? Is his arm too short? Can't he hear the complaint, the cry, the agony, the despair, the chaos? Can't he see? Doesn't he know how much it hurts? What we're going through? But here's what we have to deal with first. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. He's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking about Christians. He's talking to people who, who've received the Holy Spirit, but as it says, we can harden our hearts. We can, we can allow the Spirit to be grieved if we're not careful. It doesn't mean that our relationship is broken. It just means that God loves us too much to leave us that way. He invites us to come, to listen, to seek. And, and Boomer talked about seeking as, as repentance. And I think as, as we talked about this on staff here, we, sometimes we can think about repentance as a one-and-done deal. And that's true, that, that the moment of salvation is the moment we believed, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> there, there's nothing more you need to do. But we're being invited into a new way where God will make us, He will transform us into a new kind of person. And that new kind of person is a, a person who lives in repentance. Now, here's what we got to get straight. Repentance doesn't mean that we're always with our heads low, saying, woe is me, I'm no good. It's not a Debbie Downer kind of thing. If you look at Isaiah and how he repented, what did it do? It empowered him for service. It gave him a confidence and a courage. If you look at the disciples, when they encountered God and they repented of their sin, after Jesus rose from the dead and they believed in his resurrection, they were filled with so much boldness. They weren't afraid. (laughs) They could stand before an angry mob and say, Jesus is Lord. And they could go to prison and they could be killed because they knew the confidence and the power and the glory and the love of God so intimately, so powerfully. So this doesn't bring us down. This lifts us up. This raises us up to a place of salvation, to a place of strength, to a place of glory. That is God's purpose, not to bring us down. But we must realize that we have the tendency towards sin. And we must deal with that. He says, Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. And your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. So the Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans chapter um, 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes this. And he's making a point. He's saying the sinful condition is so deep, so strong, that no one is exempt, whether you're, you're religious or not, whether you've never heard of Jesus or not, That condition is so deep and so strong that it is ingrained in every aspect of who we are as human beings. We see in Romans chapter 3, it says, no one is righteous. Apart from God, no one can do good. And that is what Isaiah is saying. We have to grapple with the depth of our sin, the depth 
of how far our flesh can take us away from God. Now, I got to tell you, as a pastor, this is not a popular message. <laughs> it's, it's not easy to talk about this because we want to brush it aside. We want to ignore it. We don't like dealing with the reality of being wrong, of realizing we have weakness, that we have struggle. And least of likely, we don't like to admit that that affects every aspect of who we are. Because all of us can say, hey, I'm good at this, or I'm bad at that. But here's what Isaiah is saying. And everything, there is a nature of sin that has infected every aspect of who we are. But that's not the end of the message. (laughs) Aren't you glad that's not where we stop? Aren't you glad that God does something about that? And we have a part in that. He invites us to come, to come near to him, to listen to him, to receive from him, to seek him, to repent of those things. And the Holy Spirit, this is his role. He brings conviction of these things. He doesn't leave us wondering or trying to figure it out. He shows us plainly. And so this is what he says as he talks about this reality He says in verse 12, For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. So about a month ago, I got a call from someone here who's part of our Rimrock Rimrock family, and he just said, Ben, I need to confess something to you. And he didn't make excuses. He didn't say I was justified in any way. He just laid it out and said, I was wrong, and here's what I need to do to make it right. It was powerful. It was powerful. Because here's what happened. Instead of me thinking, what's wrong with him? What it did is it ignited in my own heart to examine my own heart to say, where have I gone wrong in this area? And as I began to examine my heart, I too had to confess some things before God and someone else. And here's what I think God's inviting us to, as it says in James, confess your sins one to another, and then God will bring healing. (laughs) Confession is so important. And I think so many times as, as evangelicals, we can get away from confession because we love the celebration, and I love it too. (laughs) But confession is, is, is a practice. It's part of who we are as, as, as people of God. We are people who confess our sins one to another. Why? Because we know that we're accepted and kept by God. We know God's not going to smite us because we know his heart is one of salvation. His heart is one of forgiveness. His heart is one of restoration and new creation of resurrection. And so there's confidence there. We can, we can, we can bear our souls before God and we can, we can share our struggles with one another because our confidence isn't in what people think of us or an act, whether it's genuine. We worship in spirit, and in truth. And then, as we come to that, then God can receive the healing, or can do the healing. And I was so encouraged by that. And here's what I want to say. Don't call me all the time, although I would be okay with you calling the confessions. But here's the beautiful thing. We don't have many priests. We have one priest, and it's Jesus Christ. (laughs) We can go to him, (laughs) He is our perfect mediator. He can receive our confession. And once we've confessed to him, we can bring that to others who who love us and who are for us. And we can confess that and we can be healed and we can be set free from our sin. And so here's what it says. 
So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Verse 14, truth has stumbled in the streets and honesty cannot hear. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and he was displeased because there was no justice. He saw there was no one and was appalled. There was no one to intervene. Now here's the good news. (laughs) God doesn't leave us in that place. So when we are struggling with our sin, with our struggle, when we're coming face to face with our failings, God never leaves us there. He does something about it. And this is what he says. He, with his own arm, achieved salvation. And so this is the gospel. You see, the gospel was written 800 years before Jesus came and it prophesied that Jesus would come and he would make this possible. That Jesus is our savior, that we can come to him and that he can make us righteous. He can make us clean. He can make us whole. And his own righteousness sustained him. And so what we could not do, God did for us. What we could not achieve, God has done. And so as we come, as we listen, as we seek and repent, God does something. He moves on our behalf. He saves us. He delivers us. He lifts us up. He makes us new so that we can be sent ones, so we can be people of righteousness here in this earth. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then it goes on to say, according to what they've done, he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. And here's what's important. God saves, but God is the judge as well. We don't have to figure out how we're going to get back at people or make other people pay. God says, I will do that. I will do that. We can trust God. We can trust that he's going to make this world right. He's going to do something that we can't do, that he's going to work through us as his people, as his rebuilders, as his restorers, as people called by Christ. But we don't have to get vengeance. We don't have to get back up people. We don't have to be right. We can trust in the justice of God. And here's the last thing that we need to learn. From the West, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood and the breath of the Lord drives along. So God saves. God's the judge. And here's the third thing. We are called to worship him, to revere him, to fear him, to give him our love and our praise. Are there any worshipers here today? (laughs) Do you want to lift your voice to clap and give thanks because God is worthy of worship. Praise his name. He is worthy of worship. Praise his name. He saves, he judges, and he is worthy of our praise. And this is the invitation to worship in spirit and truth. This is what it says. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those who sit in Jacob, who, those in Jacob, that's the people of God, will repent of their sins. So this is a hard message, brothers and sisters, to confess, to repent. But this is what God says. As for me, this is what my covenant is with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you. Do you realize the very spirit of God is with you? The creator of the universe. He will not depart from you. And my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips. God is with you. <laughs> he will not leave you. His words give you strength. They give you courage in this dark world. On the lips of your children, on the lips of your descendants, from this time on forever, says the Lord. 
Let's worship him. Lord, we come. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to put aside our sin, our pride. Help us to seek you, to repent, to confess. Lord, I confess that many times we have made worship into something that it was never intended to be. We've made it about us. We've sat on the sidelines as spectators. And we haven't entered into the ocean of your glory, of your holiness, of your goodness, of your love, of your majesty. So God, break down the barriers that we've built, tear down the walls, and invite us, God, each, every single one of us here today, this morning, into that deep, beautiful place of your glory, of your salvation, of trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.